Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Siegel, a leading consultant and former Columbia University professor who makes machine learning understandable and captivating. He's a popular speaker who has been commissioned for more than 100 keynote addresses. He is the author of the best-selling book, Predictive Analytics, The Power to Predict, who will click, buy, lie, or die. Today we are going to discuss his new book, The AI Playbook. Eric, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thanks, Wasim. It's great to be here. Eric, let me start with this point that you have made in various presentations, and you allude to that in the book also, that this AI hype cycle is distracting companies. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, I think that there's a lot of fascination with the core technology, almost like we fetishize how cool this number crunching is. And it is cool. It, you know, what kind of science is more interesting than computers that automatically learn from examples? And what they learn is is to predict. However, you know, the real value comes in how you use what's been learned, how you deploy it, how you integrate it, um, put it into production. And that's sort of that last mile of machine learning projects is often not shredded, not overcome. And most new machine learning projects actually fail to deploy. Taking a step back, the term AI has gotten so much buzz. And that's a term that although I put it in the title of my book, because most people have heard of machine learning as AI rather than machine learning, But the fact is, the term AI in most contexts overleads a bit. It tends to tell a narrative that we have computers that are headed quickly toward human-level capabilities. And although they are seemingly human-like in some astounding ways, that's a very different thing from actually achieving general human-level capabilities. So instead of thinking, hey, the computer's going to take over, it's going to do my job for me, it's going to automate the heck out of all sorts of... Um, work we do as humans, you need to see a little more narrowly and concretely exactly how it delivers value. In fact, that's really the antidote to the hype that permeates in the media today, is to focus on concrete value. What operations at your organization are going to be improved with machine learning? Exactly how, whether it's in marketing, fraud detection, uh, financial risk management, targeting ads, deciding which satellite is most likely to run out of batteries so we can decide which ones to inspect, where to drill oil. All these large-scale operations where we make hundreds of thousands, millions of decisions where you know we have a lack of information. It's a numbers game that we can readily play much more effectively with the predictions that machine learning delivers. And that type of use case, if you focus on that concrete value, you don't have to worry about what's real in the hype. You're eschewing the hype. You're focused on concrete value. So concrete value will come through focusing on two different aspects. One is the use case. And we'll talk about that and the goals and all those things that you discuss in the book, that how you set your goals and main objectives. But you say that instead of using the term AI, we should more focus on machine learning, actually what delivers the predictions. Is that correct? Yeah, machine learning is real technology that delivers real value propositions. It's the technology we have. The AI narrative is what we hear. 
And it generally conveys, depending on context, sometimes AI is just a synonym for machine learning uh, a lot of the time. But in general usage, AI tends to imply something else, something more, something we don't necessarily have, suppositions about how where we're headed. Um, but the concrete value comes in prediction. Whether we're talking about the predictive type of use cases I was just talking about for improving operations, or we're talking about generative, it's the same core technology machine learning. In that case, the predictions are on a different level. It's predicting what word should be written next, or how should we change this pixel as a new image is being generated. Um, but in any case, prediction concretely, that's what's delivered. And that's what machine learning gives you. It's the ability to derive predictive models from data. You have just explained that we should more focus on machine learning, that word, and not AI. But you are using the word AI in the title of the book. So you are kind of acknowledging that there is more buzz about AI. This term has somehow taken over. Yeah, I mean, it tells a great story. I mean, you don't you don't go see science fiction movies about machine learning. You see them about AI. AI is a concept, <laughs> a brand. I love it in science fiction and in philosophy. Um, and depending on how it's defined, it's perfectly fine. We call these devices we carry around with ourselves all the time smartphones without any overzealous or grandiose expectations in general. Um, a, a word by any other name, yes. I mean, the book, the AI playbook starts out pretty quickly by saying, okay, look, the type of AI I'm talking about in this book is machine learning, which is the basis for, and often a synonym for, for AI. But AI can also mean other things such as XYZ. That's not what this book's about. So, so yeah, if I'm writing a book that tries to bridge that gulf and make the concepts accessible, interesting, engaging to newcomers, non-technical, non-data science readers, business professionals which need to play a role. And it's the bringing together of business folks with technical or quantitative data scientist types together collaboratively that you really need. And that's the theme of the book. You've got to get that collaboration to bridge the gap and get these things actually successfully deployed. And if I'm going to reach those business readers, I got to call it AI. I mean, that's what everybody's talking about. That's what it is. And for the most part, very right beneath the surface, Really, they're just talking about machine learning. You discuss a number of uh, important points in the book, the AI playbook, and we will touch upon those. But I just want to step back and look at this one point that there are so many new tools that are out there now, chat GPT and so many similar things. There are companies, organizations that are struggling to figure out that how to use these very powerful technologies and tools, they are not able to find the use cases. Some of them are just thinking about automation. Why, in your view, that on one level we are flooded with these new tools and new technologies, but organizations are still struggling to identify good use cases where they can use these technologies and develop better procedures and, and then deploy them? So, so why they are struggling? Well, that's the elephant in the room, right? So let's just, let's call it out. What's the killer app? We're waiting for the, and I say, I mean killer in, in, a, in a large sense. People are talking about the seemingly human-like characteristics of what large language models like ChatGPT can accomplish in writing text that sounds like it was written by a human as if it's um, foreshadowing of general human-level capabilities. I, I think it's not. Now, it is extremely valuable, 
to write a first draft of copy in English and other natural languages or to write a first draft of code for certain programming tasks. But again, it's a first draft. There always must be a human in the loop. That's the irony, is that although these the advent of generative AI, drawing images and writing text, for example, as well as music and, 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 and speech and video is coming, seemingly more human level and human-like or, quote, intelligence, which is an amorphous term, but depending on your definition, and yet less potentially autonomous because it's taking on tasks that need hu- that need that human touch that need that human capability to be correct or if you're a human expert to know the right answer for most queries it doesn't necessarily it's not the core language models are trained just for that to be seemingly human like in the sense that they operate at that low level what should the next word be in so doing they're often correct but they aren't they aren't actually designed to meet those higher, the core technology itself is not designed to meet higher order human goals like being correct. Um, so, you know, there's this supposition in the air that the thing is that that's just another problem to solve. But no, that's a major research area. It's a completely different thing than what humans are, even if it seems on the surface to be seemingly human-like. So... You know, I would say that a major antidote to this confusion of what are we supposed to do with this stuff and where there's, yes, there's uses, but not a killer app on the level that is conveyed and promised in the general publicity cycle here. What are we supposed to do? Well, I don't know. What are you trying to do? What problem are you trying to solve? It turns out if you turn to the predictive applications the established use cases of machine learning that have been around for decades where still only a small fraction of the potential has been fully tapped. That's where you'll find concrete value. Those are, that's, what you, that's the technology you turn to in order to improve existing large-scale operations. Do you think that organizations need specialized business practices, maybe specialized managers, leaders, even specialized teams that focus on various processes that happen in organizations and then try to develop solutions that are based on machine learning and try to improve the working of those organizations? Do you think that specialized business practices are required? Yeah, I do very much so. And in fact, that's why I wrote the the AI playbook it delivers a six-step business practice that I call BizML, a paradigm, a framework, a playbook, if you will, uh, which is outlined by the six main chapters of the book, um, stepping through it, that usher a machine learning project successfully through from conception to that actual deployment, where you're planning from the get-go for that actual deployment deployment, the change, the integration, the change to existing operations, not just the number crunching, but putting the pedal to the metal and making and acting on the predictions that machine learning outputs. Only by doing so are you going to get its value, not just the number crunching. Right now, we fetishize that core technology. It's like being more excited about the rocket science than the launch of the rocket. You just mentioned BizML, the six-step process that you introduced in this book. We already have another process that we call MLOps. How does your BizML process uh, compare with the MLOps? Um, 
MLOps is an important technical solution. It's it's technical procedures, best practices, and tools that are instrumental in managing, maintaining, and deploying models. But for the organization to be willing to do so and to plan to do so in a way that's adherent with the constraints and practicalities of operational change that will get greenlit and authorized by a well-informed business side stakeholders, managers, and executives, that's a business practice. So BizML in my book is an organizational paradigm. It's an organizational practice. It's it's not a, it, in order to lead the use of a technology. Whereas MLOps and many other aspects of machine learning, model training tools and such are part of the core technology that, that of course we're trying to leverage as an organization. Leaders and teams that are going to deploy BizML in any organizations, how do you see them in terms of their skills? Are they going to be programmers, coders, software engineers, or do you think that they are business experts? Or you are suggesting that there should be people with both type of skills. So we need maybe different type of managers and leaders who understand a bit about technology, a bit of about business. How do you see the skill set of these teams and these leaders? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it's really critical for business stakeholders, non-data scientists, to ramp up on a certain semi-technical understanding of what it means to de- successfully deploy and leverage machine learning. It really comes down simply to understanding three things that define any one of these projects. What's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. For example, let's predict exactly which customers are likely to cancel how well would be metrics that define exactly how well it predicts, how much better than guessing, and metrics in terms of the business goals, such as how much profit or saving, how many customers are we going to save, what's going to be the ROI of a marketing campaign meant to um, retain them that's targeted with machine learning. Um, And then that third part, what's done about it. So the what's predicted and what's done about it defines the use case. Predict who's going to cancel in order to target retention to them. Predict who's going to be a bad credit risk in order to uh, refrain from approving their application for credit. Predict who's going to buy in order to target marketing. Who's going to click in order to target an ad. Right. So that's that's pretty simple. But that's just the very first step is to define that use case. Literally the first of the six steps defined in BizML. Um, but to participate in that process, whether you're a leader or any role who's touched by or involved with the project, it's really important to upskill. So what the book does is while stepping through those six steps, it's also serving to upskill the business reader on that semi-technical knowledge, the kind of in-depth understanding of what exactly this project is going to do and how so that you can participate collaborating deeply with the quants, with the data scientists. That collaboration is absolutely key. The only way the six-step process, BizML, is going to work is if everyone's on um, uh, on the same page, speaking the same language. Your earlier books and your earlier work was uh, mainly focused on data analytics and predictive analytics. When I was reading some parts of this book, some sections of this book, I got this feeling that you're trying to build upon those concepts that uh, that you are very good at, perhaps one of the best out there. And you are building upon those that it's prediction, it's uh, 
it's it's your data that you use to develop those predictions and those models that will be doing predictions is this a particular angle that you are taking or this is at the core of machine learning in your view well i'd say that broadly you can divide you know the way an enterprise or company or any organization might use machine learning would be for predictive applications or for generative. And the only reason I need to make that differentiation is because the very new advent of generative. The word generative doesn't allude to a particular technology. Rather, it's a way you're using machine learning to generate new content like writing or images. Always just a first draft, right? You need a human to, to review each individual um, output, whereas with Predictive applications, you can have it in many cases be fully autonomous. Like it can decide instantly whether to authorize a credit card charge based on a prediction of how likely it is to be fraudulent. That's one of many, or which ad to target, to display, et cetera. So there's a big difference between those two uses that an enterprise might leverage. It's kind of apples and oranges. But the predictive, before generative, it was just called machine learning or predictive analytics, uh, before it was called machine learning, you know, machine learning for a while was just an academic term and then it became mainstream. But whatever you want to call it, you're using the predictions from machine learning to target operational decisions. Again, that's where you have the greatest opportunity to improve existing large scale operations. It's the older kind of AI, but it, that doesn't mean it's old school. It's still extremely hot. It's where most of the money is by far. And Again, still only a small bit of its potential has been tapped. So yes, that's been the focus of my career. Um, my career has changed a bit with the advent of generative AI, and which I think is extremely amazing. I mean, when I was getting my PhD, I was in a natural language processing research group for six years and just sort of watching it fail, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> like it can't scale. Now it's scaling in a certain way where it can sort of go across turns of phrase, casual you, human use of English and other languages across topic areas and concepts. Um, it's Again, it's not reliable, as everyone knows. It's often sort of makes things up, um, and that's the nature of the beast. The fact that it's sometimes correct is what's so amazing. So I'm, I'm amazed. I never thought I'd see what it can do in my lifetime. And yet, I feel the world maybe is even 10 times more amazed than that. That is to say, too amazed with the implication that it's approaching human level capabilities. Um, I think we need to be really careful about that. But I do think that there's a lot of potential uses, especially for kind of this first draft concept or just sort of ad hoc um, inquiries, brainstorming. I mean, it, first drafts should not be undersold, right? I mean, starting with a first draft rather than starting from scratch as a human is a huge time saver depending on the task. I mean, that, that, that's got a lot of potential. But it's not the same as AI in the science fiction concept, that's for sure. Um, in any case, my book very much focuses on predictive applications, but the ideas in general and the six steps and the need to plan for how it's going to be used at the beginning of the project, not rather than the end, many of the concepts certainly pertain to any enterprise project that means to leverage generative AI. And I should also mention that our conference, Machine Learning Week, which will be in June in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and October in Berlin um, has is launching a new sister conference called uh, Generative AI World. We'll come back to this uh, six-step recipe, uh, but uh, 
you have already said that, but 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 Eric, I really want to dig deep on that. You said that you were part of an NLP, Natural Language Processing Research Group. When these transformer neural networks emerged and when we saw things happening in 2017 and then chat GPT, like how much you were surprised and you have already kind of answered that, but you really want to know more that, that, that uh, was you taken aback? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I was taken aback going further back. I think it was 2011 when the IBM computer Watson uh, beat the all-time champs at the TV quiz show Jeopardy. Yes. Yep. You know, across across any and all topics uh, where there's only one correct answer to each question. And yes, the format of the game show is it asks, it gives the answer you phrase as a question, but that that's just a, a, a cosmetic. It's It's asking a question. You're providing the one correct answer, hopefully could be any topic. And the questions are phrased in these very idiosyncratic ways that are kind of playful and clever and meant for humans. The fact that it was able to scale and do that well, and that's a very much a natural language processing task, um, really amazed me. Of course, it hinged on having lots of labeled examples from which to learn, where you already knew the correct answer. Hundreds of thousands of example questions from previous episodes of the TV quiz show Jeopardy. And for each one of these, you can actually make a whole bunch of so what you can do is put the question aside a candidate answer and then the machine learning tries to predict yes or no that's the right answer was the first president of the united states abraham lincoln the answer should be no if the model says no it's correct is it george washington the answer should be yes then it can use that to find the right answer by trying it out on a bunch of candidate answers. And when it says yes, well, that's the right one. So in doing that, it takes any individual question, explodes it at least dozens of times into many learning cases, because it's got the one paired with the right answer, plus a whole bunch paired with wrong answers. It's got such a plethora of learning examples, and that's why it scales. And that's why deep learning scales in general for saying, hey, is there a cat or a dog in this picture? Is there a traffic light to help with self-driving? Is there, um, uh, is, should there be a, a positive medical diagnosis in this um, medical image or radiog- radiography image? Um, you know, all of these things hinge on having a lot of examples from which to learn. What's happening with generative is you have the same thing because you take all the copy from the internet and it's, it's a bunch of essentially labeled examples. You take, let's say, a sentence or a paragraph and you cut it off. And you say, what do you think the next word should be? You're intentionally holding off the next word to see if you can train the model to guess the next word. So any given sentence or paragraph intrinsically has a, provides, without any additional human effort, an amazing number of learning examples, of, of training examples to feed into the machine learning process. Um, so yes, they've gotten it to scale. Neural networks were around um, in the 80s, in the late 90s when I first taught machine learning at Columbia University. Um, you know, We had the students as a, a homework assignment use neural networks to do face recognition and posing, like are you looking up, down, right, left? Are you wearing a hat? And the same level of technology was driving uh, a self-driving car only on the highway, only with a hand right almost touching the steering wheel around Carnegie Mellon University. Um, 
you know, with low resolution. And these were shallow networks in the sense that they were literally smaller. And now they're literally bigger in the sense that they're deeper. So it scaled. The ability to make use of that scale has has exploded. And, and it's, it's quite amazing. Um, but it always hinges on having known labeled examples from which to learn. That's called supervised machine learning. And now you have decided to start another conference that will particularly focus on these generative AI models. So you, you already have founded, I believe, two conference series? No, uh, Machine Learning Week is a, is a renaming. So it was Predictive Analytics World. Now it's Machine Learning Week. And we've been running it since 2009. So it'll be Machine Learning Week and Generative AI World. And Generative AI World will start from this year. Is that correct? That's right. June 2024 and then October in Berlin. Now let's go back and, and look at the six steps that you have developed in this book. Eric, if I'm an organization, let's say I'm a university and I'm exploring the possibilities that can I use these AI technologies to improve the processes and maybe perform better. And I ask you to provide some consultancy. How would you start? What would you tell me uh, or my team that we should be focusing on what? Well, what's your goals as an organization? So the way universities use, use machine learning are often to target student acquisition, right? They're trying to get more students to apply and then to actually convert into enrollment. Um, they're looking at existing student performance and dropouts, trying to retain students. Um, and they're doing fundraising, so they're targeting their outreach to donors um, based on who's likely to convert, at least to a meeting, if not an actual donation. So those are some of the typical um, uh, use cases for universities. But whatever type of organization you are, you need to look at, well, what's your large-scale operation that's of critical importance to the organization? And, you know, where are you making decisions that could potentially uh, benefit from prediction. I mean, prediction is the holy grail for driving any large-scale operation, right? Knowing the outcome or behavior and using that, not knowing it, but having a probability that's more refined, that's more precise on those be behaviors or outcomes, and then using them to directly inform all the corresponding decisions of who to contact, market to, retain. All of this is about prioritizing the use of limited resources, whether it's in marketing budget, sales budget, uh, the discount you'd give to try to retain a student or a customer, um, the expense you'd spend on, on um, test, doing another medical test on a, a healthcare patient, right? It's all about triage, both in clinical healthcare and in all sectors. You can think of it as triage. You're trying to prioritize where you apply this certain kind of treatment, how you channel those limited resources. And that comes down to prediction. Staying with the same example, universities try to recruit as many international students as, uh, as they can, and markets keep changing. So if we decide that we will use artificial intelligence and machine learning in that area, perhaps the next point is to see that what kind of data is available to us that we might be able to use to uh, train some system. Is that correct? That's the next step, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, a, a big important component of assessing the viability of a project and then actually executing on the project is to suss out what data is available 
and make sure of it. Uh, make sure you've collected it and pulled it together in the right way. That's actually step four out of six, prepare the data. Um, taking a step back, it turns out that you usually have the right data. Whatever the large-scale operation that you're trying to improve, because it's large-scale, because the stakes are high and it's done a lot, well, that means you've recorded a lot of history. You've got a lot of transactions that have been logged. So it turns out you tend to have exactly the right uh, kind of data, that you ha tend to have a good amount of data from which to learn pertaining to the very operation that's large enough and therefore most deserving of optimization and of improving efficiency for. Um, now, if, if I wanted to speak to those six steps and kind of give an outline, um, you know, as I mentioned, the thing that defines a project, a machine learning project, comes down to that th list of three. What's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. The way the steps play out is that there are first three pre-production steps where you cover exactly those three items. You establish the deployment goal, what, how you're going to use it. The prediction goal is specifically exactly what's going to be predicted, which is usually more than just, hey, I want to predict which customer is going to cancel. You have to get really precise, and this involves business pragmatics, like which customers who've been around for at least several months are going to decrease their spend by 80% within the next, let's say, three months. You have to pick a time window and not increase their spend accordingly in some other channel because then it doesn't really count as losing the customer, right? Et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of qualifiers and caveats. This, this is critical. And then, of course, the metrics, how well it predicts. Um, so those correspond with the first three steps, establishing the deployment goal, the prediction goal, and the pertinent evaluation metrics, exactly what math, what counts uh, for the project. And then the next three steps are, the, are intrinsically, by definition, what every machine learning project involves, which is prepare the data, train the model over that data, and then deploy it. Now, after you've deployed a model and you've integrated it so it's actually changing and hopefully improving existing operations, then you need to monitor it moving forward. And I do cover that at the end of the book. But in terms of formalizing an, a well-understood, simple set of steps, the first six steps are just enough to get you to culminate with that successful deployment, that last step where you're actually making a difference, the step that so often is failed to be met. Why, in your view, the sixth step is, is more important when it comes to the success and the failure. You are su suggesting that sixth step is the step where things can go wrong? Is that what you are suggesting? Well, I'm suggesting that the sixth step, which is deployment, the whole pro par purpose of the project to actually put it into production is, is where things just don't happen at all. Projects stall before you get there because of the disconnect between the biz and the tech. Business stakeholders get wet feet. Uh, excuse me, they get cold feet, sorry. You get cold feet as a business stakeholder because at the end of the day, you're saying, oh wait, the data scientist is saying this model is ready to go, but I don't understand it. I didn't really understand how we were supposed to use probabilities to change our main operations that have made us a successful company so far. I don't understand how to quantify how good this model is. I understand it's not like a magic crystal ball, and that it's better than guessing and therefore valuable. But how do I put exact numbers? What's the right arithmetic? 
This is something that data scientists are not trained to explain on a business level, and business leaders definitely haven't dived into it. They consider this the domain of the data scientists. No, this is the shared domain. It's only semi-technical. It's totally accessible, and in fact, it's a lot of fun. This is what's necessary to get us the last mile and to greatly improve the track record of successful deployments of machine learning projects. What you are saying now is somehow relevant to this the issue of unexplainability in AI or the black box concept that when you train a model uh, and the model is suggesting you that do this or that, sometimes it's hard. Actually, it's almost impossible to tell that how and why uh, the model is making that prediction. So is that unexplainability that uh, sometimes is very difficult for our business colleagues to understand? Yeah, I mean, under the explaining why how the model works, looking under its hood, getting an intuitive sense of, of what, what's making it work, depending on the technology, the particular kind of modeling method you use, it can get pretty opaque, it can get, it can get um, kind of like a black box, but there are always methods to get a sense of what it's doing in, in majority of cases. You can gain that visibility, and if it's important to the organization, if the math isn't enough, if you don't trust pure statistics, if sort of seeing that, hey, the thing is, is, is correct 99 out of 100 times or whatever it is, if that's not enough and you want to see why or how it drives a decision, you can access that. I would say that that issue that certainly uh, for the business can speak to the credibility and the willingness to deploy is only secondary. The bigger issue is, do they understand just how well it works, regardless of how it works, and exactly how we intend to use the predictions, the probabilities in operations? That's the first impediment. The impediment of getting to understand the model sort of being comfortable with some intuitive sense of how it works, that can be overcome. It can take some doing. There's a bunch of ways to, to gain that transparency. But I think that that's only a secondary um, obstacle to deployment. So this is not exactly that a black box or unexplainability issue that is there in the AI research. So that's slightly different. It's just understanding that how the model is working. And you are suggesting that the business colleagues should have understanding that how the model is working. Well, how well it's working, what exactly it does, what exactly it predicts, and then its outputs are, are just probabilities. It's a number. If like Think about that long yes-no question I posed a minute ago about whether a customer is going to cancel, but I got a lot more detailed, right? Once you understand exactly what that yes-no question is, and then the system says 38%, well, okay, we don't know whether they're going to cancel, but if, on, if in general, uh, you know, only 10% cancel within the time window, then this customer has more than three times the average risk. That's meaningful and it's helpful, right? So you can understand probabilities. You just have to understand two things. Probability of what exactly. You need to get involved in, in defining the what, defining the prediction goal. And then you need to get involved in, okay, how are you going to use the probability regardless of how it was calculated? I mean, that's the fun science part. That's the rocket science. But in the end of the day, what it's providing are those predictions, those probabilities, regardless of all the technical nitty-gritty of how they were calculated. In the end, they're just probabilities. Let's use them to decide who to market to, which transaction to audit for fraud, et cetera. And exactly how you translate from those probabilities into those decisions, it's not 
a highly technical endeavor. It's just a pragmatic business thing, but business professionals must not be afraid of getting into the details of that sort of actionable deployment part. That's the whole point. That's the value of machine learning and its predictions is when you figure out how to make use of them. Uh, how it relates to this classic management challenge of change management, because we have to do things in a new way, in a different way, and, and people must must accept that. So to deploy a successful machine learning project in an organization, it involves a lot of uh, acceptance of change, of doing things differently. So is that challenge relates to that also? Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is a change management issue like any other. You're trying to improve a large-scale operation, which means you need to change it. Change is painful. Proposing change is like proposing a root canal. It doesn't sell nearly as well as sexy, awesome AI glamorous technology, uh, which is quote-unquote intelligent. However, if you want to create value, you have to do things better. That is, you need to change the operations. And that's the whole point of these projects. So yes, change management is an established discipline. The problem is people aren't recognizing that that discipline must be invoked when it comes to machine learning projects. They think the number crunching is the, is the value generator. Well, okay, in a sense, yes, it generates the value, but you only actually capture and realize that value in the deployment, in the integration, in the change. That change must be planned for from the get-go, and the concepts of change management do need to be involved. Think of it as a business operations improvement project that uses machine learning, rather than just framing it as a machine learning project where you don't have to worry about business things like that and just let the number crunchers do their thing. Eric, you said something very important a few moments ago that uh, when you decide that you want to improve this process and when you have identified a use case, the next step is step four in, 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 in your process, preparing the data. And most of the times data is available, but sometimes it's hard for managers to readily say that, yes, we have enough data. Uh, sometimes we don't uh, appreciate the amount of data that already exists in our organization. That's right. I mean, you know, for a while there, this general area was hyped up with the buzzword big data. And the thing that's really big about data is its potential value. Data is predictive. It records, uh, it records the experience of an organization, the outcomes or behaviors that were, that were encountered in the past from which it's possible to learn. And that's what machine learning is. It's, that's why it's called learning. It's discovering patterns or formulas from that history, from those previous cases, those examples where you already know the outcome, you already know the right answer of what you're trying to predict. You're learning from that. Um, and what's learned is real in the sense that it pans out. That is that it applies in new unseen cases uh, other than the ones that were included in the training data, which is which is the sort of scientific magic of this, right? This is this means it's actually discovered something real that holds in general, that's descriptive of the world, and, and is in that way is actually uh, useful. So you've got the data; it's not in the right form and format because it wasn't necessarily collected for for the purposes of machine learning. So you need to there is a data preparation. Uh, often considered the bigger technical part of the project than the actual 
rocket science part, which is the machine learning algorithm learning from the data. But you often do have it. In other cases, though, you know, you do have to have a human label the data. And that often corresponds to where we're sort of um, categorizing rather than predicting. Is this transaction fraudulent? Does this healthcare patient have a positive diagnosis? Um, now, terminology-wise, people still use predictive. It's still called predictive analytics or predictive AI. It's still a predictive model generated with machine learning. So either it's the same concept. You're trying to ascertain an unknown. But a difference is that in those types of cases, usually you need a human. Is there a cat in this photo? Is there a traffic light? You need it to be labeled manually. On the other hand, and so, so for some projects, that can be a really huge bottleneck, a big difference between sort of historic data where you don't need an extra manual effort versus humans. Now, take fraud detection. FICO... Uh, has a model, and I talk about it in the book, that's used for credit card processing and all payment cards in general. For two-thirds of the world's credit cards, every single transaction, 90% in the U.S. and the U.K., for example, every transaction for these cards are screened in real time by this fraud detection model. What's the probability that this transaction is authorized versus fraudulent? Um, now, to, to create that model, FICO needed a whole bunch of examples where they knew which ones actually were and weren't fraudulent. And only humans are going to be able to tell you, ultimately, hey, I did or didn't actually conduct this charge. This wasn't me. This is not authorized. This is fraudulent. But the thing is that even though it requires a human to label it in that sense, humans are already doing that work. If you see an unauthorized charge in your credit card bill, you're going to complain about it. So in that sense, it's still already organically created. We have this ton of data, and it's generally extremely valuable for prediction. And do you think that organizations should develop effective strategies to deploy machine learning effectively in their organizations? And then these strategies should be linked up with the data governance and all those other uh, strategies that are relevant? Yeah, I mean, you're alluding to the fact that there's a lot of organizational considerations around data, its collection, its management, the policies. Um, but when it comes to actually leveraging data um, for value, that is to say to improve operations, to change operations for the better, predictions the holy grail, that means machine learning. By definition, that's what it, to learn from data to predict Anything that's technically endeavoring that to apply science for business in that sense, that is basically the definition of machine learning. There's a lot of different technical methods, decision trees and neural networks and logistic regression and ensemble models, etc. If you want to put these to practical use so that the project succeeds, not just technically but from a business standpoint, you need a specific paradigm, a playbook, a practice, and I call it BizML. That's the, that's the scope uh, focus of my book, of my new book. Eric, we are discussing your book, The AI Playbook. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. We have looked at this uh, six-step BizML recipe that you have uh, presented in, in, in this book. Is there anything else that uh, you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? Well, if, I, if I'm conveying the message of the book, it's a specialized uh, six-step practice. The industry absolutely needs a, a uniform, standardized practice that's well-known, not just to data scientists, but to 
um, business practitioners. That's why I worked really hard to come up with this beautiful five-letter buzzword that I'm launching with the book, BizML. Um, but remember, the other p bigger theme is that business professionals need to ramp up on that semi-technical understanding. What's predicted, how well, what's done about it. Get involved in that level of detail. And only by collaborating deeply with that knowledge as your background, upskilled understanding, can these enterprise machine learning projects succeed. Dr. Eric Siegel, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Likewise. Thank you so much, Wasim.